It's the 23rd of March, 2015, and this is episode 215. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. On today's show, we're looking at innovation on and around the Bitcoin blockchain. First, LTB correspondent Matthew Zipkin caught up with Melanie Shapiro, the mind behind the upcoming Case Hardware Wallet, which offers neat features not present in other hardware wallets for a price. Then, I sat down with Gideon Greenspan, CEO of Coin Sciences and one of the founders of the new CoinSpark protocol, a new colored coins implementation that's got my brain going at the possibilities. But first things first, here's Matthew. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. This is Matthew Zipkin, and guest on the show today is Melanie Shapiro. She's the CEO of Case, maker of the Case Wallet. How are you doing today, Melanie? I'm good. How about you? I'm good, thanks. So the Case Wallet looks really interesting. It's a cool-looking gadget. It's got buttons and a screen and a fingerprint scanner. Why don't you tell us about the origin of the device? Where did the idea come from? Sure. So I came up with this idea about, let's say, early 2014, And I had learned about Bitcoin early 2011. And since that point, I was really kind of fascinated with this idea of something that could be so potentially disruptive. I thought there were a number of problems that had to be solved first. And those two things being security and ease of use. And I I just felt that those problems could be tackled head on together. And there could be a product that married the two of those together. So that's the background. And back in early 2014, I had unfortunate event. I had lost some Bitcoin. So I started toying with actual designs for this concept. And I came up with the idea of making hardware wallet and something that looked like a credit card and that could be as easy as a credit card. That was my benchmark and something that could also offer, you know, optimal security. And so toyed around some drawings and about April of last year, I decided to dive headfirst and assembled a team in June and we've been working ever since. Cool. So when you get the case wallet, how easy is it to set up? Pretty easy. So the private key that lives on the device, it's not actually pre-populated. We don't ship it with the private key on it. So it generates itself when you do first time setup with the device through thermal noise. What happens is you get it out of the box and we have a dashboard and you sit in front of the dashboard and it will ask you to initialize your device. We generate a QR code, you scan the QR code, we build up a fingerprint template for you, you swipe your finger a few times and that's pretty much it. If you want to buy and sell Bitcoin from the device, you can input your banking information so that we can get you all set up with that. I mean, if you don't, you don't need to do that. That's crazy. I didn't know that the case actually had an exchange of sorts. So the, you can buy and sell Bitcoin directly from you? So we've actually, we partnered with someone to handle that aspect of our feature set. We, that is not our core competency, building a Bitcoin exchange or buying and selling service. So we've partnered with Salary for that piece of the puzzle. Okay, cool. So when you say there's a dashboard, are you talking about on your computer? Do you need a computer or a phone to get the thing going? 
So to get started for the first time, um, you do have to be sitting at the computer to go through first-time setup. But after that, obviously, it's a GSM chip that's included in the device. So you don't need your computer or your phone uh, for internet connection. The GSM chip, this is like an old kind of cell phone data technology, right? And it's global. You can use the case anywhere in the world. It connects over kind of a digital cell phone signal. Yep. So it works in over 100 countries. And so we have carriers in each of those countries. And in many of the countries, we have multiple carriers. And it will work in each one of those countries. And we have a list on our website under our FAQs that says which of those countries we, we support. So is there a subscription for the service or something like that? We actually bake that into the price of the device. So the model similar to a Kindle, let's say. You buy a Kindle and obviously you have some sort of internet connection, but that's all baked into the cost of it when you buy it. Okay, that's cool. And what does the device connect to? Does it connect directly to the Bitcoin network uh, like an SPV wallet would? So the way that it works is the device is not directly connected. It goes through an API server, and the API server is what connects to our database server and then our wallet server and the wallet server out to the blockchain. Uh, The device also has a camera, so you can take this thing with you and uh, make Bitcoin transactions in person anywhere. Yep. So obviously this is how you send and receive Bitcoin, and we thought it was pretty important to be able to do this kind of in the wild wherever you are. And so the camera that we're using is fantastic and it works in all different sorts of lighting. In fact, it's pretty cool. We, we had the device up and running at Inside Bitcoin in New York and we were showing people how it worked and we were watching people use their wallets on their mobile phones and scanning QR codes for their phone cameras. And it was really, really neat to watch the device capturing QR codes and how much quicker it would capture the QR code than a phone and you know, that was pretty cool moment to watch them side by side. So the camera itself is, is pretty awesome. So where does the thumbprint verification come into play? I actually kind of have two questions about that. One is like the process of how it's used. And then also I'm curious about the security behind that. Because I know like, I think like on, on the new iPhone, the thumbprint scanner can be hacked with like a piece of scotch tape or something. So what's the security and the procedure with the scanner? The fingerprint scanner itself, what happens in that process is that we just extract the minutia. So the, the lakes, the valleys, we broadcast that. It's not stored on the device. So that's really important is that all of that data is stored encrypted in our database and it's encrypted using a data encryption key that lives on the device itself. And so we didn't ever want to store that information on the device in the event that you were able to crack into it, read the fingerprint off of it. Also, we never store a full image of the fingerprint. We only ever have the template. So you would never really have enough. If you've got access to anyone's fingerprint information, you would never really have access to enough that would look anything like a fingerprint. So does that mean when you want to send a transaction, you scan your fingerprint on the device and it sends that to your server for authentication before the Bitcoin transaction is signed? Correct. So what happens is because it's a multi-sig wallet, the way it works is that once you swipe your finger, the device partially signs the transaction um, with its embedded private key and then broadcasts that along with the minutiae extracted from the fingerprint to our server, at which point the server verifies the fingerprint and then completes the transaction. The fingerprint actually unlocks, if you will, the private key that lives on the encrypted database. 
So the case wallet is a multi-sig wallet, and it's two of three, right? Correct. So the third key is a recovery key, and we've partnered with Third Key Solutions to manage that process, the recovery process. And if you like, if you would like, you can also import your own third private key. When you first get the device and you set it up and it generates its initial seed, then you create an account with Case, and that's where the other two keys come into play. Correct. So we generate. We only generate one of those keys. The device generates the other upon first-time setup. And then if you want, at the time of first-time setup, you can generate your own third private key. When you originally create the seed, is there a mnemonic backup phrase for the seed that's actually on the device? No, there's not. And there's not really any need for that because the point is that the backup is the case server and the third key solution server. Exactly. Right. And I'm curious about your partnership with third key solutions. Do they have an API or do they just give you a huge batch of public keys that you're confident they can restore the private key to? How does that get integrated? So they don't actually give us, let's say you were to lose your device, they don't actually give us the private key. They basically just generate the, we have the public key for it. Um, the transaction is generated and, and you decide which address you want your, your Bitcoin to be recovered to. Yeah, I mean, when the initial setup is happening and your case wallet is determining what its multi-sig receiving address is going to be, is the public key from third key integrated at that point? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yep. So you guys have like a database with all these public keys from third key solutions that you can give out to customers as they start signing up? Correct. So we're still working on the way that process looks. We're following the operational standards that C4 put out. So it's cryptocurrency security standards, something like that. Anyways, but they put together a matrix of security that we follow in designing that process out. So we're working closely with third key. And obviously, um, before shipment, that will be a public and very transparent process. Okay, cool. And is the wallet deterministic as well? Or do you only get one address? Yep. For every single new transaction, there's a new address that's generated. How is the secure part of the device isolated from the GSM connection? Is there any way that an attacker could connect to your device remotely through the GSM? Right. So we never, ever invite communication. We only ever initialize communication. And that was a part of our security design was to never allow someone to be able to communicate with us. We only ever start that communication. That was very important for us. So when you get the device, is there any way to verify the firmware or examine whether or not it's been you know, tampered with? So we actually are working on a number of things, packaging solutions that can help guarantee that. Um, there's a number of like plastic packaging that you can put over the device, secure packaging that you can use. On top of that, we're open sourcing the firmware on the device as much as we possibly can. So that's another way that we're kind of guaranteeing the, the security of the device. On top of that, goes through audits. We're actually in that process right now, the security audit. So as much as we can protect our customers, we certainly ensure that. And we're manufactured in New York State. And one of the decisions, one of the reasons for that decision was so that it didn't have to go through customs and we kind of limited the amount of borders it had to go through. Okay, so you're planning on open sourcing some of the code and so the firmware can be verified and can people install their own firmware can they upgrade it themselves no not with version one cool and actually as a bitcoin company in new york state are you dealing with any bit license or ben lasky uh infamy so 
from what we understand and what our, our legal and counsel is telling us, it seems that we may be outside of that. However, who knows? And once it is formally proposed, I think that We'll obviously have to take a closer look at it, but we certainly are not opposed to regulation in general, but we do think that, you know, especially in its initial form, that the regulation was incredibly detrimental to small startups like us. Right. But you guys aren't actually, you're not really custodian of anybody's funds because between third key solutions and the multi-sig, you're not, you're not really controlling anybody's money. So it seems like you guys should be. Yeah, we, (laughs) that's the, that's the hope privacy wise obviously case has to know every transaction that i do because you need to countersign does the master public key ever leave the device does that get sent to a server i guess it would have to right you must keep on the case server the the master public key that all the other public keys are derived from do you know what i mean Yes. Um, honestly, don't know the answer to that. That would be one for my CTO. Okay. Okay. What's the recovery process in case the wallet gets damaged or lost or stolen? So as it looks right now, what happens is, so that piece is protected by information that you provide during the time of first time setup. So that was kind of the key here is that there's three private keys, three factors of authentication, and that third recovery key is protected by information information layer of authentication. So you provide a number of data points for us. And what we do is we ship you like a test device to be able to to get your fingerprint data so that we can have access to and verify your fingerprint on our servers to make sure that it's actually you. And then we collect that and then go through the questions, list of questions that you've provided and we have the answers to. And then after that, we engage with third key solutions And it is confirmed through that process that you're the one that wanted the transaction to take place and you've provided the address that you want your Bitcoin to be sent to. And do you offer transaction limits or anything like that? Will you, is there any case where, is there any case where the case server will not countersign a transaction that appears valid? You are able to set spending limits on the companion app. So if you wanted to set that to, let's say, two Bitcoin or 200 US dollars, whatever, um, you would be able to do that. And then if you ever want to adjust it at any time, you can do that as well. Are there any features that you wish you could have implemented, but maybe were too expensive or couldn't be completed in time or something like that? Yeah, there definitely were some things. We initially, the device was thinner um, when we had originally designed it. Right now, it's about the thickness of, say, like three and a half credit cards. Um, And it was originally supposed to be thinner. But there were some, obviously, constraints with different components we had chosen. And uh, a lot of that comes down to money and being small startup and not being able to order quantity. So, yeah, that's definitely something I hope for version two is we can make it even thinner. Do you have any plans to expand, you know, to altcoin coverage or any other type of crypto token, anything like that? Yeah, definitely. And that's something that we've talked a lot about internally and something that is on our radar and hopefully a priority in further build outs. And it just charges with a regular USB port? Oh, nope. Inductive charging. Oh, cool. So it just sits flat on the charger? Yep, it does. And we ship with the charger. That's very cool. Very high tech. So there's no actual data ports on the thing, right? Correct. Uh, It's all, it's physically sealed. That's a cool design. Yeah, definitely. It's physically sealed. And, you know, so we, we love the idea of the inductive charging and it's, I don't know, it just, it feels very kind of high tech as well. So we, we were happy with making that decision. And, and actually, 
the device seems to be running in about 100 transactions before it needs to sit on the charger for a short period of time. Is there going to be another product after the case wallet? Well, obviously we are, we're going to be working away as soon as we get this first version shipped out. But right now we're really just focused on optimizing everything for, for version one and starting to really put our heads together once we get customer feedback about what version two should look like. Um, we're really kind of passionate about that. It's getting these first thousand devices out there, getting people to use them, hearing what people have to say. I mean, honestly, this the design of the device was fairly similar to what it is, you know, what's actually going to be shipped. But I have to say that there's a number of conversations I've had at conferences and at workshops that have really informed some of our decisions that otherwise we might not have made. So we value, you know, obviously what the community has to say. And there are a few decisions in particular that um, we've made recently that came from, again, just conversations we had with how we had with people who haven't, weren't even customers yet. So once we get some customers, I think that it will be even more valuable once we get it in their hands. And how do you like this setup? What new features would you like? What don't you care about? What can we get rid of? All that we're really excited to get back from people. Is that part of the motivation behind just doing a thousand unit limited run then? It's kind of like an experiment. Yeah, I would say so. And I have to say, though, we learned a lot from the coin presale. I don't know if you know who those guys are, but they had launched that all in one credit card and they had started a presale and promised delivery on such and such date and just never came. And I think a lot of it, what happens in presales a lot of times is that companies will start a presale and they haven't actually finished development and the problem with that is hardware is so hard and so most unexpected things happen so we wanted to be able to be finished with the device itself we wanted to finish having done a manufacturing run the software the firmware everything so we're at that point and so we were confident in starting the sale when we did because we knew we would be able to ship them and here we are so is the pre-sale on already yes the pre-sale is on and doing so well. We're honestly really humbled and shocked by the response and they're almost gone. So we're pretty excited about that. Amazing. Well, congratulations. So if there's any left, where can we get them? What's the website? It is choosecase.com. Well, this is really exciting. I'm I'm excited for you. I think this is a a really cool device and hopefully it helps keep a lot of Bitcoin safe in the future. Yeah, we we certainly hope so. That's definitely the goal and, and combining Ease of use and security is something we're really passionate about. We think people really think sometimes we forget about how important ease of use is. But if you think about all the Bitcoin that have been lost or stolen, a lot of that has been lost. When you introduce, I guess, levels of difficulty, you introduce ability for human error. And so we wanted to eliminate that by making something easy and getting rid of the ability to, you know, whoops, lost the Bitcoin. We wanted to protect the bull against that as well. Okay, well, Melanie Shapiro, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for joining us. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. Let's Talk Bitcoin is heard each week by thousands of people who are participating in the new digital economy. Our listener base of Bitcoin owners, miners, investors, technologists, and merchants is growing fast. We offer a limited number of short advertising slots in each show to keep our listeners engaged and to provide maximum impact for our sponsors. If you'd like to talk to us about Let's Talk Bitcoin, send us an email at sponsors at letstalkbitcoin.com.
Hi, Stephanie here. Would you like to turn your book into an enthralling audiobook? Need a persuasive commercial to promote your company? How about a narrator for your explainer video? Here's where I can help. I'm a freelance voiceover artist, and since 2009, I've lent my voice to dozens of audio projects. To hear some examples of my work, check out my website, smvoice.info. If you like what you hear, I'd love to be the voice of your next project. Get in touch at smvoice.info. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by Gideon Greenspan, CEO of Coin Sciences and creator of the CoinSpark protocol. Gideon, thanks for taking the time. Hi there. Thank you very much for having me. So CoinSpark, what is it in a nutshell and why is this the thing that you're spending your valuable time on in this environment of opportunity? CoinSpark is one of the three main projects that we're working on in Coin Sciences, but it's certainly one of the main ones. CoinSpark is a protocol for enhancing Bitcoin transactions. It has a few features and there's more features coming down the line. The two main features are transferring other assets using Bitcoin transactions. So it's in the kind of colored coin school, um, along with some other protocols I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with. And the other main feature is a messaging protocol. So it enables you to attach text or images or files to a Bitcoin transaction in order to send uh, more information to the recipient about the meaning of that transaction. So this is all built on top of Bitcoin, and yet you still have a concept for a CoinSpark address. What is that? The problem with sending, let's say, uh, an asset over a Bitcoin transaction is that if the wallet you're sending it to doesn't understand the protocol, then it will receive this asset from the point of view of your protocol, but the wallet will know nothing about it. So the wallet is quite likely to send that asset onto somebody else by mistake because it's not making sure that the asset remains in the user's wallet unless the user explicitly sends it on otherwise. So you need some way to protect the sending wallet from wallets which are not familiar with the protocol. And so a CoinSpark address is essentially just a wrapper for a Bitcoin address, which includes some extra information that indicates which aspects of the CoinSpark protocol are supported by the receiving wallet. And we do it, we use it not only for assets, but also for messaging. So when you paste a CoinSpark address into a CoinSpark wallet, it will know whether or not the recipient can receive messages and, and, and show options accordingly. Now, so I apologize in advance, and most of the questions that I ask you that are kind of trying to dig at the deeper nature of this are going to come from the context of someone who's using Counterparty a lot, which is another metadata protocol. What I'm looking for here is for you to point out areas where you are fundamentally different. So with Counterparty, when if I were to send an asset to an address that is not a Counterparty wallet, right, it's an address that is controlled in, say, Hive wallet or something else that doesn't know what to do with tokens, there's no chance that it'll be sent on by that wallet. The wallet simply won't know what to do with it and so isn't able to send it on. Explain why this is a concern with CoinSpark. Yeah, so first of all, you're right about counterparty, absolutely. But you still would have the concern that you'd need to somehow get the transaction back out of that other wallet, but you could do so by exporting the private key and importing it somewhere else. So it's, it's less of a risk. The fundamental reason is that there's, there's two types of um, Bitcoin 2.0 protocols. There's the ColorCoin school, and there's the, what I call the Bitcoin Ledger School. So in the Bitcoin Ledger School, of which Counterparty is a member, assets are stored by address rather than in the actual transaction outputs of Bitcoin transactions. And so it doesn't work so closely with the underlying transactional model of Bitcoin itself. Whereas in a color coins type protocol, of which CoinSpark is one, the assets are stored in a transaction output itself. And therefore, as soon as a wallet has received a transaction, and it spends that transaction output, the asset is going somewhere else. Now, if you're lucky, it's going to go to the change output of that transaction, which comes back to the wallet. But if you're unlucky, it might be going to the recipient, some other, you know, some other party. 
that's the reason why you have this risk with color coins type protocols rather than counterparty and master coin type protocols. Despite that risk being um, a slight negative, the reason that I believe color coin protocols are a better bet in the long run is that because they superimpose over the Bitcoin transactional model, you enjoy a lot of benefits um, of Bitcoin transactions. So for example, if I send you a Bitcoin transaction, even before it's confirmed on the blockchain, within a few seconds, you can have a pretty high level of confidence that once it appears in your wallet, you're actually going to get the final thing. Because the network itself, unless someone is deliberately submitting transactions to a miner who's not behaving according to the network norm, the network itself is not going to accept double spend against that first transaction. And so color coins type protocols can use that property in order to behave a lot like Bitcoin transactions. Whereas Mastercoin and Counterparty, which have their own benefits, because they're more removed from the underlying Bitcoin model, they don't get to enjoy that kind of thing. And also, if you look at kind of how Counterparty and Mastercoin works in terms of exchange transactions, where two people are exchanging an asset for each other, they tend to have to wait for a block to be confirmed in order to feel confident that an exchange has taken place. Whereas if you superimpose over the Bitcoin transactional model, and you keep your assets in a Bitcoin transaction output, then you can do a peer-to-peer exchange of an asset, and within a few seconds, the, the transaction that conducts that exchange is distributed over the network, and you can be very confident that the transaction is going to be accepted into the blockchain. So I hope I haven't gone too much into the science of it, but that's kind of the key difference between those two schools, those two, two ways of doing things. Literally everything that you just described there are things that I have viewed as core fundamental problems with counterparty. And my solution to that has been to work on an open source project called Tokenly that's basically building server-based tools to fix that part of counterparty at kind of a lower level, both for automated uh, selling and being able to detect and deal with transactions before they're actually confirmed into the blockchain right. while still having some of that security. So it's very, I, I agree with you. All of these things are core fundamental issues. So, so the, so is that the only downside to your transactional model and to using the colored coins approach or are there other things? that are gotchas besides that? Because those are definitely advantages if that's just something that's fundamentally you can do within the protocol. Yeah, so there's one other thing that Counterparty and Mastercoin can do that color coins type transactions cannot do because they have this greater freedom because they just use the blockchain as a ledger of all activity and they can decide how to interpret those rules however they want. So the advantage they have is you can do decentralized exchange over the blockchain. So one person can submit a transaction which represents an offer of exchange and then some person later on somewhere else can submit a second transaction to accept that offer. And this whole peer-to-peer exchange has taken place using transactions on the blockchain without there being any kind of centralized service anywhere which perform the matching between the two parties. Now, that is a powerful feature. The downside of that feature, however, is that it makes peer-to-peer exchanges more costly. Because even in the best case, you're doing two transactions instead of one. But if you start having people submitting offers and then canceling offers and then uh, someone else submitting an offer and then several other people accepting that offer and only one of them actually managing to get the exchange, you start having lots of additional costs associated with these peer-to-peer exchange transactions, which you don't have if you superimpose over the Bitcoin transactional model. So it's, it's kind of pluses and minuses. And, and I would say that depending on the use case, um, you may or may not want those additional kind of features and also shortcomings of, of counterparty and mastercoin type protocols. So talk to me about um, your assets, because I noticed that you have assets in a style that is closer to mastercoin, but I think it's still different than that, than it is to counterparty. Um, you, you have uh, asset servers, and I believe that you also have the ability for um, the same names to be registered by more than one, and then you have like a, a name system on top of that? Yeah, so the CoinSpark asset model, there's quite a lot to say about it. And um, the first thing is that unlike other color coins type protocols, in the asset model of CoinSpark, one transaction output is able to hold multiple assets. Um, and this is kind of a key feature. There's quite a few aspects of CoinSpark, which 
aren't important today because there's very few transactions and all of this stuff and it's all very expensive. Well, so hang on, let me break in here. Yeah. So, so when you say, so what you just said is that basically if I wanted to send like three different types of tokens, each in a different amount, I could do that in a single transaction as opposed to what I'd have to do now with something like Counterparty, where I would have to make three different transactions, each containing one type of token. Yeah, so that, that's one aspect. Another aspect is that if you think um, in the future when perhaps millions of people are going to be holding hundreds of different types of tokens representing different things, if every token held by every person has to be a separate transaction output, what's called a UTXO in, in the parlance of the Bitcoin network, that's going to put a lot more load on the network than if each person can hold a single transaction output which holds most of their assets. So there's kind of some scalability aspects there which, again, aren't being felt now, but which are very important going forwards. But that's, that's kind of at the protocol level. If, if I've got a, a bit more time, I'll explain to you a little bit about how, how we approach assets in CoinSpark. Yeah, please. So the problem with any protocol for issuing assets over the blockchain is that anyone, because it's a decentralized protocol and there's no censorship, anyone can issue any asset with any name. And the holder of the asset has absolutely no idea whether or not that asset is valid. I can create IBM stock, call it IBM stock, issue it over the MasterCoin protocol, distribute it to, to users. And how do people know if it's IBM stock or not? So the simplest way to, to authenticate an asset is to have the asset itself tied to the website of the issuer because people have learned over time to trust domain names that appear in their browser. If you see IBM.com in your browser, you're going to feel very confident that that's something to do with IBM um, because you know that they own that domain name and in order for someone else to get control of that site would be a really huge disaster for IBM. So you trust that you can, you can enter your username and your password on that site and you feel confident about that. So, so CoinSpark leverages that confidence in order to tie assets without question to a domain name. So in order for a CoinSpark asset to be valid, on the website of the issuer has to sit um, a web page representing that asset, which also points to a contract explaining exactly the meaning of that asset. And this domain name is displayed prominently inside the CoinSpark wallet. So when a user receives an asset, the asset has a name which is chosen by the issuer and that's displayed. But just as prominently, the domain name is displayed by the wallet and the person has the ability to click through to check that the asset web page is there and that the, uh, the domain name belongs to who they think it belongs. So that's kind of another important aspect of CoinSpark assets, which isn't so true about some of the other protocols that are out there. So one of the other things that I notice is that your assets compared to a lot of the other ones that compared to other protocols have quite a lot of, uh, of fields, right? There's a lot. Uh, I see expiration dates. I see contract templates. I see transaction charges. Yeah. I see, uh, yeah, I mean, so, so talk to me about this. What, what is the use case here or is this just intended for any type of use case? So, so transaction charges specifically is an interesting one because then you start thinking about the business model of people issuing these assets. One possible business model they could have is that they would earn fees from transactions which move their asset around. So credit card companies right now take and they're one and a half, two percent of every transaction. So you can imagine somebody issuing an asset in their name, which is denominated in a regular currency like in dollars, and their business model for their asset could be that every time that asset changes hands, they earn a two cent fee. And so that we built that into the level of the protocol, which is something you can decide when you create an asset whether or not there's some kind of transfer fee involved. Um, every time that asset changes hands. If an asset does have that feature, then the wallet can let the sender decide whether the, the fee is on the sender or on the recipient. Just like when you send money now from one bank account to another, you can choose who pays the fee. So that's one part of it. The other thing we did with CoinSpark, which I haven't seen with any of the other protocols, is we actually work pretty closely with, with um, a lawyer, uh, two lawyers, one based in the UK and one based in the US, to draw up what we hope are watertight legal templates that tie ownership of a Bitcoin private key to legal ownership of the underlying asset. So there's actually a common law template there, 
which uh, we turn into a PDF contract automatically for you if you use the asset uh, creation form, um, which kind of defines legally exactly what your asset means and ties it, defines the Bitcoin blockchain and the Bitcoin network and defines everything that's needed to be defined in order to legally tie down ownership and where ownership represents the right to redeem something in exchange for that asset from the issuer. So that's part of some of the fields that you're seeing is related to that fact that we've done quite a lot of serious legal work, um, which again, I could be wrong, but I haven't seen that yet in any of the other uh, protocols out there. I see you've got three other fields or, that are particularly interesting to me in addition to you know, uh, test that stuff. One, you've got a redemption delay, which is confirmations to redeem. So I'm curious what that means. And then two, you have redemption countries, which are restricted to which residents and prohibited territories where uh, essentially it's forbidden to send the asset. Can you talk to us about that? I mean, like, is this, what, what is the goal here? Yeah, so the, the, the thing about the first one, in most cases, the asset you're holding represents the right to redeem something from the issuer. It could be some cash, it could be some stock, it could be something else. You can't expect the issuer to send you that real-world asset um, immediately after you send the transaction in. They, they have the right to wait a certain number of confirmations of your transaction on the blockchain before they give you that real-world asset. So just like a Bitcoin exchange won't let you you know, buy dollars straight away and then withdraw those dollars to your bank account um, before the Bitcoin you sent to them has kind of been confirmed several times. The other two fields, there's nothing technical there. They're just kind of straightforward fields which modify the content of the contract. But the idea there is that the issuer can, can essentially say, you cannot redeem this asset if you are in a country which is currently you know, subject to sanctions, something like that. So that you need to give the issuer a way to say that. And the issuer can also, as part of the conditions of the asset, say you're not permitted to transfer it to people in a certain territory. Now, very hard to enforce that because you don't know what territories the asset has been uh, contained within, but at least the issuer has the right to, to make a legal case that it's forbidden people who are holding its asset to transfer it to certain territories. I have to say, Gideon, this looks really compelling. Um, and I've been like, looking through your developer section. You have very comprehensive documentation. Yeah, so I can talk about a couple of the other things that, that we're working on in the company, um, which, which are related to CoinSpark, um, at least on a philosophical level. So the reason I started this company, and I think I probably don't have to persuade you or your listeners, the blockchain is a, is a really fundamental advance in, in what we can do with computer networks. And as a result, there's a fair chance that there's, there's some really interesting um, commercial opportunities out there which need to be explored and, and, um, and developed. One thing I always felt when I first started using Bitcoin is that Bitcoin as a currency is very interesting, but to my mind is probably not the most interesting thing about blockchains. I mean, it's the thing that got it started. and you know, I bought some Bitcoin too, like everyone else, but kind of what interests me are other things around blockchains which aren't directly related to cryptocurrencies as an asset. So there are two other themes that we're exploring in the company. The first theme is just the general idea of metadata in the blockchain. So the same mechanism that CoinSpark uses to attach information to transactions can be used for all sorts of other purposes to just use the blockchain as a general purpose, decentralized, timestamped, highly secure storage mechanism for any piece of information. And you see services coming out now like um, Proof of Existence or Bitstamp and Factum who are, who are taking advantage of that fact to place little hashes in the blockchain, you know, 32 bytes in size. But those little hashes are actually extremely powerful because they prove that a certain thing or a certain collection of things was true at a certain point in time. So that's, that's one avenue we're exploring. And, and in terms of products, that expresses itself, first of all, as the Coin Secrets website, which is just a nice little website which lets you view everything that's going on in the blockchain and who's a, who's a pending metadata and which formats are being used. And we've also developed a library. Um, right now it's for PHP, but we'll be doing Python and Ruby in future, which makes it really easy for people to use up returns and to embed data in the blockchain and to retrieve data from the blockchain 
in a very, very simple way. Because it's quite complicated to, to code this stuff up yourself. So we just kind of wrap it all in a very simple command line or, or, or a library call that people can use to do that. And one interesting thing that you might want to explore is that the growth rate in usage of op returns is actually extremely rapid. Um, it's still pretty early. We've only, we're only a year in. There's a chart in, my, in the, that slide presentation that you mentioned, which shows the growth rate of use in op returns, and it's extremely fast. My feeling is that, that this may be the first genuine killer app of the Bitcoin blockchain. It's just a general purpose storage mechanism for very small but very strategically important pieces of data. So that's one avenue that we're exploring as a company. And there's all sorts of ways that that can develop in the future into software as a service businesses where we basically provide some kind of service to make it easy for people to put data in the blockchain and get data out of the blockchain and all sorts of specialized compression algorithms for certain types of data that people want to put in the blockchain. The second thing we're exploring, which is a completely different angle, is the idea of private blockchains. So one of the things we discovered when we started um, developing CoinSpark and talking to people that we thought would be very interesting issues of assets is that right now, from the perspective of kind of big corporate world or, or the enterprise world or the, fi- or the kind of mainstream financial sector, it's too early for them to build stuff on top of the Bitcoin blockchain. There's, there are too many questions about it in terms of scalability, instead of transaction costs, in terms of mining, you know, who's mining it and can we trust the miners? And there's questions about um, privacy as well and controlling what goes on um, that make it right now look a little bit like the Wild West from the perspective of kind of corporate America, let's say. So it became clear that, that there are still many applications of distributed ledgers where people might want to use a blockchain because they want to transact between several different um, entities in a decentralized way, but they weren't willing at this point in time to, to build on top of the Bitcoin blockchain. So we're developing a product called MultiChain, which will come out in the first beta in around, around a month or so which is kind of an off-the-shelf, very easy-to-use package for, for building and deploying private blockchains. The, the philosophy we're adopting with this is that we, we've based it off Bitcoin Core, so it's completely backwards compatible with Bitcoin Core. And the way that we see it is we may well have a situation where companies start by experimenting on the Bitcoin blockchain because it's there and it's easy. And then they'll realize, actually, we want to do something with this, and then they'll, they'll move it to a private blockchain because they want scale and they want low transaction costs. And then maybe five or 10 years' time when the Bitcoin blockchain has much higher transaction volumes and has known costs and, and has kind of proven itself to be very robust, they might then consider kind of moving stuff back to the Bitcoin blockchain. So we've got, we want to kind of create a platform for building and deploying private blockchains, which is very, very compatible with Bitcoin and which enables people to move their applications from one to the other and back without having to modify any of their code. And that's kind of the philosophy behind the product. Talk to me about the future. If you find the traction that you hope to, you know, what does your ecosystem look like in two or five years? You know, what are what kinds of things are being represented as tokens and who is doing the representing? I think two years is, is the right time scale that looking at kind of extrapolating out various trends that, that I see. I think two years is when things are going to get commercially interesting. Um, and that means that we all have to be patient. I see two interesting directions. Number one is, and, and this is an unpopular view for many who believe that the Bitcoin blockchain is primarily about a currency, I see this idea of long-term storage in the Bitcoin blockchain as, as something that will become a real business. So we have now this kind of industry where miners are being paid by the block reward and a little bit by transaction fees. And the reason that the transaction fees are very, very low is that there's no competition for transactions. 300,000 transactions a day approximately in capacity using the current parameters of the Bitcoin blockchain and there's kind of demand for 100,000 of those transactions. So because there's no competition for transactions, everyone just attaches the minimum low fee, and some people even attach no fee, and everyone's transactions get embedded in the blockchain, and everybody's happy. I think once some seriously attractive applications, especially of metadata, start to come out, 
the number of transactions that there's demand for is going to start being much higher than the number of transactions there's capacity for. This is a natural situation. Um, if you look at any other kind of other thing in the world where something has economic value and has scarcity, this is very normal. You have supply and demand, and then the price rises so that the supply and demand match. I see, it seems to me quite likely that in a few years' time, we're going to be in a world where there's a real cost associated with every Bitcoin transaction. And so because to some people it's worth $10 to put a hash on a blockchain, that's what the price will start to move towards. And people who are just doing kind of small, low-value transactions will find that the Bitcoin blockchain is not a very economic way to do that. And I think that will happen whether they keep, you know, there's this debate about the block size. I think that's going to happen eventually, whether the block size is one megabyte or 20 megabyte or 100 megabyte. It's just a question of when. Ultimately, this is going to be a compelling platform. There's no way that the block size can be made big enough to support all of the things that everybody wants to do while keeping it as as some kind of meaningfully decentralized network. So ultimately, I think it's likely that the transaction fee will rise and therefore Bitcoin will primarily be used for high-value transactions which are embedding valuable pieces of information in the blockchain. And then everyone's going to be paying the miners for real, right? The miners will still get the block reward, but the miners will be being paid a meaningful, significant amount for every transaction that they mine and that in the long term is a much more healthy situation because it doesn't matter what the Bitcoin fee is, the transaction will have the value it has in dollars or in euros or in pounds. So that's where I see the Bitcoin blockchain going. In parallel to that, I think the, the, the world of private blockchains is going to be a completely separate world with, with completely different economics and completely different customers and completely different use cases. Even though the first thing we developed in the company was a, a protocol for transferring assets over the Bitcoin blockchain using metadata, I actually see in the medium term those two things diverging. So you'll have metadata in the Bitcoin blockchain as a compelling application and then transferring assets over blockchains as a compelling application, but not over the Bitcoin blockchain, rather over private blockchains. Until perhaps at some point in the future when all sorts of issues are resolved in terms of scalability and archive nodes and nodes which um, there's this whole idea, which is a very powerful idea of embedding inside every block a representation of the set of unspent transaction outputs so that you can have full nodes which don't have to store the whole blockchain. Once those issues get sorted out, then I think we might have a shift back again to, to a really, really high-capacity Bitcoin blockchain with low costs. But in the medium term, I see a high-cost high Bitcoin blockchain and, and financial applications being run over private blockchains, which have much, much lower costs. So now each of these private blockchains you're talking about, do these wind up, in, in your view, wind up working in uh, single or uh, integrated wallet-type applications? Or does each one of these private blockchains require its own kind of native app wallet interface? I can talk about how we're designing our product. It's called multi-chain, and one of the reasons it's called multi-chain is it can connect to multiple blockchains simultaneously, and they'll all be running the same protocol. So think about how you, know, you use your web browser and you connect to multiple sites simultaneously, and you can easily copy and paste things between the sites. So we envisage something similar, where there will be lots of different private blockchains run by different groups with different rules for different purposes, but you'll have like a single piece of software that can connect to all of them in a very easy way without each requiring its own wallet. I've kind of had this idea in my head for a long time now that uh, if we're going to be in a world that has pervasive tokens where, you know, you might see single merchants issuing dozens or even hundreds of tokens representing even specific products getting down to that level of granularity. I've kind of seen this uh, future of exchanges happening almost on the back end where the user in their wallet indicates the types of value tokens that they actually find valuable and that they would be willing to receive. And if everything is built on the same type of protocol and either there's a decentralized backend or a service provider providing the function, then you could effectively have it so that I send you uh, an invoice that is denominated for my purposes in Atom coin, whatever the value of that is. You get the invoice in Gideon coin and you pay the invoice in Gideon coin and I receive Atom coin. And we're both happy with that transaction because we are, because it's functionally the same amount of value. 
It's just depending on what type of polymorphic form you might put it in, right? Is that what you see too, or do you see something different? If we're talking about different assets which are issued on the same blockchain, I think the right model for exchange is, is, is a federated exchange. And by that, I mean that your wallet will have multiple exchanges that it connects to, right? It'll just be another service in your wallet, just like your wallet can connect to the website of an asset issuer to verify the contract. Your wallet will connect, will connect to several different exchanges simultaneously. If there's some exchange you want to make, perhaps it will be implicit or perhaps you'll have to state it explicitly depending on the use case. Your wallet will essentially communicate behind the scenes with all of those different exchanges, put out an offer, which represents what it wants to do. And then it will take the, it'll take the deal, which is provided by whichever exchange gives the best deal in a reasonable amount of time. And as soon as you have a kind of federated model like that, it starts to look a little bit like decentralized exchange to the respect of the user, because you're not dependent on a single entity, which can start you know, extracting a very high tax. Even though behind the scenes, you've just got lots of different, many, many different kind of mini centralized exchanges, that, and you can kind of work with all of them. And, and once you have that, your wallet can very easily, you know, if an exchange starts to pay tricks on you where it promises you something that it doesn't give you and that kind of stuff, you know, the kind of tricks that we know that go on in the, in the traditional um, trading world and on Wall Street, you know, you can just very quickly disconnect from that exchange and say, well, I'm not going to, you know, my wallet's not going to keep talking to that exchange because it, it gives me offers that it can't, it can't actually um, deliver. Assets transacted on a single blockchain, that will work very well. When you start having assets which are moving between different blockchains, when you want to exchange between assets between different blockchains, it gets more complicated because you can no longer have a single transaction which is treated atomically by the network. When I say atomically, I mean it either succeeds or fails as a whole. You can't have a single transaction which swaps Bitcoin for Gideon coin or whatever other exchange we want to do. And you're going to have to actually do something like send your asset in to an exchange and then uh, buy an asset on a different blockchain from that same exchange. So it'll look more like the world we have now of the Bitstamps and, and uh, the Krakens and the like. So CoinSpark is completely open source apart from one small component, which we've, we've kept in-house because it would be the basis of a future business model if the protocol succeeds. But in terms of actually day-to-day use of the protocol, it's all completely open source with very, very liberal licenses. Because the CoinSpark metadata is, is, is very rich and is very, very efficient, it's quite complicated to read and write the metadata. So we have libraries for C, Java, JavaScript, PHP, Python, Ruby, and Go. So for seven different languages to make it easy for people to use the protocol. So that's CoinSpark. All the stuff to do with metadata in the blockchain and the library for, for writing up returns and that kind of stuff is all completely open source and available on GitHub. Multi-chain for now is not going to be open source at the beginning because um, we believe it's a software product that we should be able to sell. Um, however, that's something that's fluid. And, you know, obviously the challenge that every company has in this space is if you don't open source enough, then people don't use your stuff. But if you open source too much, it's very hard to, to make a business out of it. So we're kind of trying to strike the right balance with that. And we'll, we'll see as time goes on how, how that develops. Tell me about Coin Sciences. Um, you know, uh, what type of company are you? Are you looking for uh, any hires? Are you looking for investors? And where do people contact you? Okay, well, great. Thank you. So Coin Sciences Limited is a UK company founded just over a year ago. Um, we did a small uh, angel round um, when the company was founded. A couple of angels that I know personally, and I invested some funds myself. We are three founders. All of us are technical to one level or another. So even though I'm the CEO, I also do quite a lot of technical stuff. I designed the CoinSpark protocol and I wrote five of these seven libraries. And it looks like we're hiring now a business development person. Um, so we're not looking to hire anyone else right now. And we're also not looking for any additional investment right now. But what we certainly are looking for are people who are interested in the stuff that we're doing and um, want to talk to us about how we can help them conduct what are in many cases uh, experiments using blockchains and blockchain technology, particularly people who are looking for a solution for private blockchains 
we've spoken to a lot of people in the industry and we know that this is something that there's a lot of demand for um, and we feel we have a very uh, solid stable solution and which is kind of has a good roadmap for the future so people who are looking for a private blockchain solution are very very welcome to get in touch and um, you can email me at gideon at coinsciences.com or you can uh, check us out on twitter um, with the handle at coinsciences Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Melanie, Matthew, Gideon, and Adam. The magic word for episode 215 is spark. That's S-P-A-R-K. Spark. You've got until the 30th of May to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Music for today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by both Matthew Zipkin and Adam B. Levine. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. See you next time.